Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity <laughs> Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning, listeners. And it's a nice, uh, bright day today. Uh, not as cold as it as was the last few weeks. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. 855 on your AM down and streaming live on the web. In today's program, we have uh, an interview with Mr. Gautam Modi, who is the Secretary of the New Initiatives Trade Union in um, India, and he will be commenting on the strike that was held on the 2nd of September, where 150 million workers mobilized across India. And of course, we have the regulars. Marcus Harrington, member of the NUW, who will be talking about trade union issues. And the week that was by Uncle Kevin bringing satire to the program. And then, of course, we have our regular um, Humphrey McQueen, the freelance journalist and social comment and political commentator. So let's begin. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to say that um, Garth and Modi's uh, interview with us is a little bit um, low on the quality of sound, but it's generally very clear. Uh, I hope it's informative. And by the way, it's Lalita here at the studio, your host till um, 9 o'clock. So here we go. Welcome to 3CR, uh, Mr. Gautam Modi. You are the Secretary of the New Trade Union Initiative. And thank you so much for putting aside some time to talk to 3CR. I wanted to start talking about the start by talking about the strike that was held recently, the 150 million workers who struck in India. I wonder if you can tell us something about the reasons for the strike for, uh, to start off with. The principal reason for the strike is that workers, their wages and their jobs have been under attack, sustained attack for a quarter of a century, an attack that's been sharpened by the pres- present right-wing government over the last uh, year and a half. Uh, so, so, so this was really to assert all of wage and trade union rights, as it were. But more specifically, uh, the strike went along uh, a 12-point charter, which included a recomputation of the minimum wage, rights to freedom of association, universal social security, and a fight against uh, privatization uh, of uh, public utilities, the financial sector, etc. This ballpark of what was what was behind the strike. But I think in principle the strike was about the government and employers' attack on 
wage rights and training rights. From what I understand, the current uh, BJP government led by Narendra Modi has uh, launched into a huge campaign in attracting foreign investment. And there is a view that foreign investment creates jobs. What do unions think about that or your particular union think about that? You know, foreign investment is meant to, or rather private investment is meant to drive growth. If you're a developing country like India, where, where, where actually domestic investment is, is, is typically both low and unstable, then your reliance shifts as an economy to foreign investment. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence over the last quarter of a century that either private investment or foreign investment has really contributed to either job creation or to growth. In fact, the investment that's created jobs, the investment that's created uh, growth has come from the public sector. So, you know, it's secondary investment in the private sector that's the back of public sector investment that may have at the margin contributed to growth and jobs. So this is this is the reality. So uh, Narendra Modi and his BJP government are really repeating a, 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 a failed recipe for uh, neoliberal uh, economic policy. It's not just anti-worker. It's anti. It's anti-society. Uh, it's anti-anti an entire country. I mean, it works even against the the, the middle class and the upper middle class who are affected by instability in the economy. Mm. India has just come through a phase where it has. Uh, enormous growth in the middle class um, and the the workers you particularly organize in the um, new trade union initiative are outside that, that middle class arena. But yet, I just wondered if you can give me some comment of this growing middle class in India. Where do they come from and who's who's um, giving them jobs that, cre- that has created this middle class? The new middle class, as it were, emerged primarily in the service sector. I mean, India offers a dichotomous ex, uh, ex, uh, experience of, of, of economic development. India is an economy that's moved not as every other economy on this planet, from agriculture to manufacturing to services. India is an economy that's bypassed manufacturing and moved from a primarily agrarian economy uh, to a uh, service economy. Uh, where has this boom come from? This boom has come from low wages. So this is basically IT. IT-enabled services, business process outsourcing, which has created jobs in the service sector. This is really body shopping. This is this is this is putting putting cheap Indian labour at the disposal of large global corporations in the global north, including Australia. So that's the emergence of this class. So, you know, in both real terms and in money terms, at much lower wages and fewer benefits than 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 it is in Europe, North America. And uh, in Australia, news. So, so, so the new middle class is also riding, uh, you know, the race as it were to the bottom. In fact, if I can add, and the sense of sort of security, certainly sort of year-on-year large large wage wage increases of this middle class have come under threat um, uh, in the in the recession post 2008. So, so you know, it's 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 actually brought the limits of this kind of. Uh, middle-class-led consumption growth model uh, into question. In the strike that happened recently, was the inclusion of the middle class in it? Did the middle class participate or was it just workers who participated? Well, certainly large swaths of uh, non-manual workers, white-collar workers who are in unions, notably uh, the left-led bank employees' unions uh, participated in very large numbers, employees um, in the public sector, government employees, and uh, a small section 
of uh, non-manual white-collar workers who are in unions in the private sector or who are left in unions in the private sector. There used to be in the 70s and 80s fairly large numbers of private sector white-collar employees who used to be in the unions. So it would not be correct to say that it was, you know, didn't have a section of the middle class. There is definitely a, a section of the middle class that's unionized, that's in unions, and uh, participated actively in the strike. That said, the large numbers came from the working class, and large numbers came from manual, manual workers. I think what's also most significant and different about this strike is the largest numbers in the strike came from workers in the private sector, uh, which is different from previous general strikes, and uh, from, from workers in the private sector who are actually irregular, who are on contract, day laborers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's what is different about the strike. That's, in a sense, what made the strike not just yet another workers' general strike, but really a political strike of the working class. So the private sector strike would have been from uh, factories or um, companies that are from overseas, yeah? Or even the rich, rich in, in yes. India? Yes. I mean, the, the strike in the private sector was indeed mostly in manufacturing, uh, and therefore, yes, in the factory sector. Mm-hmm. And uh, it included both types of companies, both both both, both Indian-owned companies and global firms. We did we did see uh, uh, strike action uh, in very very large numbers in some of the largest global firms present. Mm. Uh, we saw all of Suzuki shut. We we um, of course I think we had also witnessed an important uh, strike in the uh, in the private sector outside of manufacturing, which is DHL, the courier company, which 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 also struck throughout the country. So what do you think this strike has achieved? I think this strike has um, has achieved um, three things. One, I think it's told government that workers have strike power, and this strike power cannot be scoffed at. And I think what's important is it's really the working class that has sent this message that this strike was not party party led, and that's a very important message that has been sent. With that, the message is also gone. I mean, if government is listening and business is listening, they should also get the message that it is not just the central party, uh, party-connected unions, but vast swaths of workers that, uh, who are members of independent unions across the country have struck, perhaps in larger numbers, and that workers have struck in, uh, were, were in irregular jobs, struck possibly even at the cost of losing their job. I think that's one, one very second message is that this was a strike of centrist and left forces within the working class because the uh, trade union of the BJP, the BMS, opted out of the strike. So this was not an all-trade union strike. This was a strike of centrist and left unions, uh, uh, which I think was an equally important message to send out that um, although the BMS may be statistically a very large union, uh, its capacity to strike is not sufficient or its pulling out of a strike is not sufficient to dampen the spirit. We've never seen a strike so large. We've never seen a strike so so well spread out. I think the third uh, point gain on the strike is it's brought a lot of confidence into the working class, into working with, into working people that not just can they strike successfully, but what's important is they strike politically, and I think an important part of, of, of um, you know, what's a political strike is the 
capacity of workers to stop strike breakers, to stop disruptors, to stop blacklegs, uh, and that was achieved uh, a very, very significantly across the country, especially in the enclaves uh, uh, where the, their large private sector factories. Uh, also, in the case of public transport. Um, so, so, so I think I would say I would say these are the three important sort of both messages and gains of this strike. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live on the web. Mr. Gatha Modi is the Secretary of the New Trade Union Initiative in India, and he is clarifying the details of the strike that happened a couple of weeks ago, which involved 150 million workers across India. Just to clarify something for listeners in Australia, the BMS is the Bharatiya Mazdoor Sangh, and I believe the National Trade Union Congress and the Congress of Indian Trade Unions all are aligned with the Congress Party. Would that be right? Uh, the Bharatiya Mazdoor Sangh is aligned with the uh, 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 with the BJP. Mm. It's part of uh, the family of organizations that are of the far Hindu right. Uh, it's it's uh, technically and more directly a spin-off of the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Senat Sangh, which is the ideological boss, so to speak, of the BJP. So, so that's the BJP's union. Mm. The Indian National Trade Union Congress is the union uh, affiliated to the uh, Congress party. So, um, understandably, the, the BMS would not have supported strike because it will be uh, against the government it supports. Well, the BMS, the BMS has been part of joint action since this government was formed in May 2014. The BMS was part of the strike call, which was issued in May 2015. It opted out of the strike, I forget exactly, a week or 10 days before the strike, claiming that the government was willing to negotiate and we should be willing to negotiate. Now, the fact is, on the eve of every strike, every government is willing to negotiate. The point is, what was on the table? There was mm-hmm. nothing substantial or meaningful on the table. It was also a one-way negotiation. It was a negotiation called by government, by an extraordinarily arrogant government. Uh, it was a one, the negotiation was a one-way street. It was at the behest of government, at the time chosen by government, uh, at the pace chosen by government. There were nothing but, 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 but meaningless assurances on the table. So the BMS has walked out of the strike at its peril. Um, I think it's a good thing that the BMS opted out of the strike because um, I think they've, they've really helped clean the slate and tell us which side who's on, um, which, uh, which is a good way forward because, because we do have a fight on our hands and it's important to know who's with us and who's not. I'm grateful to the BMS for having clarified this for us really as an organisation. Yes. We're very happy to be after that. Yes, that brings me to, to the union that you are the secretary of, the um, new trade trade union initiative, which is uh, refreshing um, with its program. Your, your policy is um, unity, democracy and militancy. And you have off, offered an alternative vision of unionism to workers in India. And you're independent of government, employers and political parties, from what I understand. And my understanding is also that you go beyond the bureaucratic economism of the the normal bureaucratic um, unions that we have. Will that be correct? Well, let me not let me not call names on my on my comrades in other trade union organisations. I mean, all of us have have you know good bits within us and not so good bits within us, and everybody's trying very hard at this time. Uh, we, we 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 certainly at the NTO, I think. Uh, uh, 
working class organization in the 21st century must draw very closely from the experience of the 20th, but and that what it teaches us is that from those lessons, we need to be different from how we conducted our problems. And I think going, I mean, you know, one part of it, which is very specific to the Indian experience, is unions have had one-on-one -on -one close, if not controlling, relations with political parties. And that's something which we think is was really a phenomenon of the 20th century. And uh, if you genuinely want to unite uh, the working class, then it has to be united around the multiplicity of progressive ideas, not just the one party political. So that's certainly, that's certainly um, sort of, you know, a core that would make a difference. We would also, we, I think we also argue that there are both questions of gender and of community, community defined, divisions defined by, 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 by religion, by caste, um, both of which really divide societies, not just in this country, but also in the subcontinent and elsewhere in the world. Um, we have not, as the union movement in the 20th century, been very successful in addressing social divisions caused historically by gender or by other communities. Um, we, we must bring that understanding into our conception of what is what is what is what is class. Um, I think uh, we would add to that that the barometer of the economy has changed uh, away from public employment to employment in the private sector, and nobody would dispute the fact that it's moved from regular, quality, permanent, secure jobs to highly insecure, non-permanent jobs. So we would put our emphasis in organizing irregular workers. That's really where the fight is, uh, or that's really where the big fights are going to have to be fought. We put, put emphasis on ensuring that we, 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 we also unionize women in very large numbers. We focus on areas of employment where women are being pulled into employment. Unequal wages, terrible workers, and the same goes for oppressed communities, be it by religion or by caste. Yes, and, and some of them are actually construction workers, and, and predominantly a lot of women are worked as um, unskilled labor in that area in India, aren't they? Yes, there's construction workers, there's uh, you know, an increasing number of domestic workers as the new middle class that we talked about emerged. There's uh, sort of also sort of whole section um, of, of you know, new service sector employees uh, catering to the new middle class, which is in retail, in trade. Um, we have a huge band, we haven't even really got, got our head around it. In the course of the last three or four years, we have a huge band of workers who are working in e-commerce, who are, you know, um, who are delivery boys, who are co uh, couriers, who are dispatch clerks, who are warehouse employees. So we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, transformation of uh, economic arrangements quite rapidly. And uh, I think we need, we, we need to be more nimble-footed and moving into these new sections of employment where working hours are incredibly long and wages are typically exploited. Hmm. And I also notice you, you also organize sex workers in your union. In very small numbers, I have to be honest, we don't organize them. They organize themselves and they decided to affiliate to us, so I wouldn't want to take credit for having organized them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are an affiliating national organization and many sections uh, that are, are, are different from, 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 from everyone else Really, the initiative comes from within workers, within communities of workers, uh, and uh, the credit must go to the militant sex workers of Bombay, uh, sorry, of uh, Kolkata, of uh, Bangalore, uh, 
who, who organize themselves, who fought their street fights and built robust organizations. Hmm. Um, I, I think I think part of being new is also uh, I think to recognize you know the innate capacity of workers to organize themselves rather than sort of you know take the credit for everything at the sure. Uh, we sat in our national office in Delhi and did all of this. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I just also wanted to um, finally just discuss your, the way you, you, you describe your union. You, you, you have said in the past that unions are not negotiating um, organisms. Um, you, you are there to build class consciousness and solidarity. And in Australia, classically, they are negotiating machines. So I just wondered, how do you do that in India? And who negotiates and how do you build class consciousness? Well, I mean, let me, let me not sort of, you know, turn this into an opportunity to comment on Australian trade unions. Uh, we certainly work very closely with comrades in the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and the Textile and Building Union. And we are collectively very proud of what they have achieved. Uh, I don't think we anywhere are saying unions are not negotiating. It's just a question of what, at what level do you negotiate? Do you negotiate from a point of weakness or do you negotiate from a point of strength? I think building class consciousness is an ongoing exercise and in a sense, in a political space, the task belongs to the trade union first and then to other other organizations within political formation. Class consciousness comes through education, it comes through worker education, to activist applications, but most of all, it comes through struggle between workers and their employers, where we learn from each experience, be it victory or defeat. We I think our consciousness grows when we learn most of all from our defeats, when we understand the strengths and weaknesses, so to speak, of employers. I think the trade, trade union is the terrain in which we actually draw out uh, employers and Thank you very much um, for allowing us to interview you. And hopefully we'll catch up with you again when you get some results out of the strike, you know, see, see what, what comes out of the strike that was such a massive strike and it's been known around the world, but we don't know the details of it. But that's great. Thank you so much for clarifying and, all that for us. And, and all the solidarity for their fights to comrades in the streets and Melbourne. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Gautam. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labour College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. 325 fraud charges? Oh, they're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. 
It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. Saturday, September 26, will be the one-year anniversary of the forced disappearance of 43 Mexican students from the teacher training college at Ayotzinapa. These young activists were rounded up by police and reportedly handed over to a drug cartel. Mexico solidarity groups around the world will be marking the anniversary by screening a new documentary about these events called Ayotzinapa, Chronicle of a State Crime. Ayotzinapa, Crónica de un Crimen de Estado. This film will have its Australian premiere in Melbourne in a one-night-only screening at RMIT City Campus. Starting at 6.30pm in Theatre 20, Building 80 on Swanson Street, on Saturday, September 26. Entry by donation. Visit the community calendar on the 3CR website for further details. This event is organised by Australians in Action for IOT Number. A 3CR supporter. And welcome back. And this is Lalita Chalaya in the chair, taking you through to 8.30. And apologise for the last couple of minutes of the interview with Gautam Modi, despite the fact that India hosts or employs thousands or probably millions of people in the IT, particularly in the um, call centres. We had trouble with the last bit of Skype there. Um, so apologies, uh, listeners, once again. Now, we've had a sizzling week. We've had an amazing, amazing week, actually, um, full of activity. Uh, we have a new Prime Minister, of course, and as many people have stated in the last week, the work is not done. The uh, cover, the book cover has changed. The content hasn't. So we have to, we have a big battle ahead of us. It's even harder because the knife is being inserted nicely, not brutally like uh, Tony Abbott did. So we do have a problem um, in trying to convince people that the um, content of this Liberal Party, the policies of the Liberal Party hasn't changed. So we have a massive fight. And talking about fights, we've got heaps coming up in terms of activities um, in Melbourne. Tomorrow, for example, there is a rally midday um, at the State Library to declare our state gas field free. So all those um, people around the state who are opposed to um, the CSG project should be there and to protest against the large companies destroying our land. That's tomorrow, midday, at the State Library. And on Tuesday at 5 p.m., there is a solidarity um, action being held at the Brunswick Tram Depot, 807 Sydney Road in Brunswick, in support of tram workers. It's a passenger support activity. So that's Tuesday at 5 p.m., Brunswick Tram Depot, 807 Sydney Road, Brunswick. And on the 27th of September, which is I think next Sunday, that'll be, we have a protest on no war on Syria at the State Library. Uh, for details, you might have to hit the web. I haven't got the time here. But we have heaps and heaps of um, activities. And 
there is a also a um, photograph exhibition about Iran. Um, Bahaman, who we interviewed here in the past, um, has um, arranged for this exhibition. And tomorrow in particular, there is a film around midday uh, showing uh, the negotiations that were held with the UN and the reply they, the people in Iran got from the UN in relation to human rights abuses in Iran. So it's on till Wednesday, but they'll be packing up probably on Wednesday. So if you'd like to head down to the Trades Hall, it'll be um, indicated as to where to go. And there are heaps of other things happening. And another one that's coming up in relation to the Kurdish people, once again, Middle East area, the Kurdish freedom struggle has been totally ignored in this um, time where, where there's heaps of discussion around the attacks uh, on um, Syria and especially our soldiers and air force being sent out there to bomb Syria. And, the, of course, the massive heartbreaking plight of refugees who are fleeing the war zones. And of course, we very sensibly are bombing them so they can create more refugees. Very intelligent. Amazing strategy, that is. But in support of the Kurdish people who are never mentioned in the media, on Tuesday, September 29th, 6.30 p.m., there is a pamphlet being launched which provides a background to the Kurdish freedom struggle in Turkey and Rojava, the Kurdish majority liberated zone in northern Syria. Speakers will be Dave Holmes, who wrote the pam- co-authored the pamphlet, and Dilek Geik from the Kurdish Association, Jesse Smith, human rights lawyer. There will be a meal provided from 6 p.m., entry by donation, at the Resistance Center, level 5407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT, presented by the Socialist Alliance and Green Left Weekly. And last but not least, we have um, Malcolm X's daughter speaking in Melbourne. She will be speaking in the Melbourne Town Hall on the 9th of October. So if you're interested, again, hit the website. Um, It's at 6.30 p.m. on the 9th, and you might be interested in um, listening to, to her. She is a social activist, political activist, and uh, she carries her father's name, uh, the Muslim name, um, Ayesha Shahabaz. So it's, it should be an interesting evening. So now, coming up, we have uh, Rank and File Radio, presented by Marcus Harrington. If you've just joined us, this is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live on the web. And on today's edition of Rank and File Radio and Community Radio 3CR, I'm once again joined by Davey Thomason, the Rank and File CFMEU and MUA member, and he uh, joins the program for the fourth part of an interview. Uh, welcome back, Davey. Uh, thanks very much, dear comrade. Uh, it's good to talk to you again there, Marcus. Uh, I, I first want to acknowledge the land I'm talking from, uh, the Wadarong people's land here, from the Kulin Nation. Uh, the land that's been stolen and uh, hasn't been handed back yet. So uh, we'll try and make sure that happens. Uh, I, uh, uh, when I heard that it was, and I know it, uh, 40 years of uh, since the coup in Chile, 40 years in the coup, coup in Chile, and uh, I was uh, uh, 74, I was in, uh, and uh, what happened the uh, the Whitlam government uh, recognised the uh, Pinochet 
and uh, and 40 MPs signed a petition against it. 40 Labour MPs, and uh, the the Siemens Union and uh, the Warfies, the WWF, immediately went on a 24-hour strike in 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 protest against the the Whitlam government uh, uh, recognising the 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 fascist regime in, in of Pinochet and his generals. You know, he he had uh, overthrown the democratically elected uh, socialist popular unity uh, government in in, uh, in Chile. Uh, I can remember that uh, that day. You know, when the wharf's twenty uh, four hour stoppage and uh, uh, it was it was pretty uh, pretty full on. Uh, and also the 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 seamen banned the the visit of the I think the name of the training ship was the sailing ship the Isabella, which had been a torture chamber uh, for for all the the communists who had been murdered and socialists who had been murdered uh, uh, in uh, in Chile. They, they 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 dumped all the after they tortured them uh, the 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 freedom fighters, they, they tossed them over the side. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's that's the brutality of, uh, of fascism. And uh, it's been shown its face here in, in Australia recently with Abbott. It's very similar to the the fascist regime here uh, that's been going on here for a long, long time. But it's it's very much uh, uh, come to a peak with, uh, with uh, Tony Abbott, you know. He's a, he is a very, very dangerous uh, uh, fascist, him. And uh, he hasn't gone away yet. And the, the, the person who's uh, uh, know, know the Prime Minister, uh, uh, Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, he is the, he's a smiling assassin. You know, the, he's Mr. Goldman Sachs. He hated the 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 financiers Goldman Goldman Sachs, you know. And even Kerry Packer said that yeah that you had to watch uh, him if there was a pile of money between him and you know, the other the other prick Kerry Packer, you know what I mean? He was even more vicious than Kerry Packer, this man who says he is uh, Prime Minister now, you know. Uh so I, I wanna acknowledge that uh, uh my uh my comrades who are I actually got comrades in San Diego now. Uh, Camilo and his family, Jacaro. Uh, I have uh, been connected to Chileans from when I started playing. Uh, I started playing football with uh, what they call soccer here with Colo uh, Colo in uh, South Australia. I played with the Chilean Colo Colo, the Mapuche, Mapuche people, the, whose leader was Colo Colo. That's the name of the team. You know, they are the, they are the resistance team in in Chile. The resistance uh, football team. Uh, so that's why I I thought this is appropriate. So if you don't mind, it's the first time I've ever read uh, a, a letter that I've written, and this was written back to where I belong, back in Shetland, and my own people back in Shetland. I I wrote a, a letter to the a, a paper called the Shetland Times. It went, and that's that's in print, and then it went online uh, in the Shetland News. You can you can you can you can uh, search engine them, you know, the Shetland Times and the Shetland. But this was November 2010, and it was.
was a Remembrance Day. Uh, it was printed on the 12th of November, and Remembrance Day, I think, was uh, is uh, November the 11th, the 11th of the 11th. So the, it was called, the letter was called Remembrance Day 2010. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. And that was Pastor Martin Niemöller, a Protestant minister in in, uh, in Nazi Germany. I think that was the same man that uh, uh, Ke Kevin Rudd said he was inspired by. I decided to repeat the pastor's words, first of all, because I was inspired by Malachi Talek, speculator on the Roma gypsy, then the recent racist attack on three women in Lerwick. On the night between the 9th and 10th of November, 1938, 72 years ago this week, began the Kristallnacht, when the windows of all Jewish shops and business were smashed and closed down. Synagogues were burnt to the ground, Jewish folk were declared to be vermin, the Holocaust had begun. Before that tragic night, on the 22nd of March, 1933, the first concentration camp at Dachau was opened. On the 2nd of May, 1933, trade unions were dissolved. I visited Dachau near Munich in 1982. It was one of the most profound experiences in my life. Arbach macht free. What makes you free was the Nazi lie that framed the gates into the death camp. Jehovah Witnesses were criminalized on the 1st of April 1935. On the 13th of June 1938, Gypsy Cleanup Week, Roma and Sinta reached the Oswich death camps on the 22nd of February 1943. In Dachau, homosexual men, Christians who resisted, and folk with mental health problems entered the electric fence ringed hell on earth. When the war started, Red Army soldiers entered the death camp. A mass grave of 4,000 Soviet soldiers were found after the war. They were not given their rightful prisoners of war status. Germans, Austrians and Jews were the majority before the war. Poles, Russian, French, Yugoslavs and Czech were the majority during the war. Catholic priests, mostly from Poland, were the majority of Christian inmates. But Orthodox priests from Russia, Serbia and and Greek Quakers were also interned. Politicians, royalty, actors, musicians, teachers, journalists, everyone who resisted the white supremacist master race ideology. Medical tests on the inmates, germ warfare, immersion in baths of ice to assess how long it took to die in the Arctic Ocean to assist the Navy and the Luftwaffe. High altitude tests on how long it took until a person's brain exploded through their skull. Operations on inmates without anaesthetic. Resistance fighters from all over occupied Europe, including our comrades in Norway, ended up being murdered in the death camps. 41,500 41, folk were murdered in Dachau. It was the smallest of the death camps. In 1936, the fascist General Franco invaded Spain from North Africa, cheered on by the British establishment. King Edward VIII was a Nazi sympathizer. After his abdication, he took the title His Royal Highness the Duke of Windsor, 
New evidence finds that he was a collaborator. Hitler's Luftwaffe and Mussolini's Air Force bombed the Republican Army. Guernica, Picasso's famous painting, depicted the slaughter. The international brigades went to the Republic's aid. Scotty's participation percentage-wise was higher than anywhere else in the world. Over one million died before the Second World War had started. Hundreds of thousands died in Franco's death camps long after the Spanish Civil War had ended. Thousands died forcibly worked to death, construction as mausoleum in preparation for the dictator's death long after the Second World War had ended. The hierarchy of the Christian churches led by the Vatican supported the fascists and the Nazis during the Civil War. In Australian, racism encouraged by the mass media in subtle ways and snapped up by the liberal nationals, the Tory opposition. Muslims and refugees from war-torn Iraq, Afghanistan and Tamils fleeing Sri Lanka are the new scapegoats. The hatred spewing out against refugees at the public meetings before where new detention centres are planned is palpable. We've been rallying outside the detention centre at Marleybong, Melbourne, shouting our support over the razor wire to the folk imprisoned inside. The racism and injustice shown to Aboriginal people is an international great in this wealthy, lucky country. Shetland should unite and say no to racism. Education is the way forward. Kindergarten, primary and secondary schools, families, all codes of sports should take the lead. Music, which is Shetland's global face, has a responsibility to take a leading role. I want to apologise to the women involved and their families. I'm deeply sorry you experienced racist abuse and assault in Lerwick, my birthplace. Yours in solidarity, Davy Thomason. Thanks, Davy. It was a letter written home, as you, you can understand, written home to where I belong, uh, 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 Marcus, you know what I mean? So it, uh, and it's very uh, apt because right just now, Shetland is coming out en masse to welcome uh, Syrian refugees. And, uh, and it, words like welcome to our tribe, Welcome home to our tribe is one of the... Shetland says welcome, you know what I mean? A small community, you know, 22,000 folk, you know what I mean? Uh, and you can see it here in, uh, in, in most places in Australia, you know what I mean? Most places in Australia. But in reality, the, the real racism that people don't... Keep, they, they've got amnesia about is the racism against my family's people. You know, the Kuris and the, the Nungas and the Nunga and the, the Mori. That's where the racism is, and nobody seems to even notice it because uh, it's not happening to them, you know. And I notice that every day here where I belong. It's, you know, the face of racism is vicious, and it's happening every day to us in here. Not just, you know, now and again. Our whole life is... Uh, is defending, defending, uh, or or two or bairns, you know, and our families who are under a huge, huge, uh, and that's the same for all First Nation people here, you know what I mean? So people got to waken up and and start giving, start giving to the First Nation people. All you've done is take, 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 take. You take it in wages. You take it in super. You take it in long service leave. You take it in every RDOs and you don't give nothing 
You don't give nothing to, to, and that's what First Nations people are saying. They protected this country for 70,000 years, maybe even longer since the first Australians come here. And generation after generation looked after their, their country, you know, the many countries that, and the many nations that's in. And look what this, the filth that, you know, the, that come out here in, in the, the Navy. They were naval invasion, you know, Cook, Bly, you name it, they all come out here, you know. And they, they were a naval invasion force, the same as they are trying to get a naval invasion force to, to attack uh, the, the People's Republic of China, you know, that's that's what the Japanese are trying now, you know what I mean? And the people of Japan are rising. You know, the people of Japan, the younger Japan, they don't want to go to war. They don't, they, they are the people who are sent to war. You know, Tony Abbott didn't go to war. He sent other people to war. Yeah, John Winston Howard, actually, <laughs> named after the, you know, another, another uh, racist, Winston Churchill, you know, one of the biggest racists. He killed people in South Africa when he invaded in South Africa, you know, Churchill. And, you know, that was his, his uh, where he went into battle for, for, for the wealth, the wealth of, you know, Africa and the wealth of uh, of this country, you know. This is uh, 227 years, I think, 1788. Welcome back to Tricien. And we have a, another couple of announcements before we go on to Uncle Kevin for his uh, usual satire. Now, on the 23rd of September, there is a rally to defend penalty rates. So for all of those of you out there who wish to do this, it's at Parliament House at 12 midday. It's, it's organized by United Voice. Yet another rally is happening on the 21st, which is a Monday. It's at 12.30. It's in relation to defending people who are defending the destruction of, or fighting against the destruction of climate, sorry. The government is launching a report into probing environmental groups that receive donation um, beyond a, uh, under a certain amount, which is tax-free. So if you want to defend those organizations who are fighting to defend the community against the destruction of the environment, there is that rally for you to attend. So Melbourne is really sizzling with all sorts of activity. So you cannot be complaining there's nothing to do, heaps of work to do. So let's go to some announcements before we go on to Kevin Healy for our satire. And of course, that will be followed by Humphrey. You say it's only progress, but you didn't ask me. Did you know most of Gippsland and southwest Victoria are covered in licenses for unconventional gas and coal exploration? Gas companies are trying very hard to get their hands on Victoria's precious farmlands. Are we going to let them? No. It's time to declare Victoria gas field free. The state government has launched another inquiry but won't commit to permanently protecting Victoria. 
So come and rally with the Lock the Gate movement and stand with the 64 gasfield-free communities on the steps of the State Library on Sunday, September 20th at 12 noon. Information, quitcall.org.au. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. Melbourne publisher Chart Collective invites the community to share their private moments of joy and catastrophe in the multi-site publishing project I Was Here. From now until Monday the 5th of October, you're invited to share anonymous true stories set in Melbourne's CBD to be printed on posters and hung near the site where each story took place. To submit your true story, go to chartcollective.org. Chart Collective is a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. your support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radiothon. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. If you have just tuned in, this is Lalita Chalaya at Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR, 85455 on your AM dial, sorry, and streaming live on the web. And we now will go on to listen to Uncle Kevin Healy, the satire for the week. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the Canberra Comedy Festival saw then-big Supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, and then-Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Peter Duffer falling about at Pete's Razor Wire, sorry, Razor Sharp Wit, a side-splitting routine about our Pacific neighbours going under, under the weight of Troubler Aussie's fossil pollution. 
well, the civilised developed world's fossil pollution. And the former Minister for Concentration Camps, etc., scuttled them more lash sun, looking aghast. Uh, there's a microphone. He swallowed, too late. But while Tidy and Pete were falling about, they got this message. Uh, there's a party meeting, they were told. And thus, the comedy of errors led to Tidy becoming a not-so-funny footnote in the history of parliamentary plutocracy. The plutocrats deciding it was time to run the show themselves. The puppets weren't transferring the wealth to them quite fast enough. But on that, of course, how fast enough is fast enough. Selecting their richest plutocrat in their parliament, representing the wealthiest seat in their parliament, one of their own, one of the 1%. And the Mr. 1% big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull mouthed to the compulsory how humble he felt. And the first word that springs to mind when we think of Malcolm is humility. And he assured us he would be consultative. That's very reassuring, the boys down at the Melbourne Club chorused. After attacking poor Malcolm the night before, before the vote, the Minister for Offensive Training, Trained Killing Kevin and Screws the Workers bounced up on media everywhere to tell us the caring business class party must be a broad church. Well, that's where his policies come from, a broad church involving people like him, and it would destabilise train killing if we kept changing the minister. And, well, we've all admired how Kevin hasn't let, let his not-so-Catholic, small-C Catholic views influence his belief in the broad church, as in Britain, where the tiny plier New Socialist means no socialist lot in their socialist party also call, scream desperately for the broad church bit as more to the left Jeremy Corbyn becomes big supremo and would be big supremo. Again, we can recall the broad church way tiny blyer and the new socialist means no socialist lot embraced the more to the left. A year or less after the Greek election, Syriza, Cyprus, no concessions and all that, we can but wait and see on Jeremy as the plutocrats, led publicly by Lord Rupert of Wapping, give him the works. With Lord Rupert's renowned balance and fourth estate community watchdog fairness, Jeremy leaving Parliament for the night, for instance. Good night, I'm straight to bed. Reckless hard-left economic vandal Corbyn in late-night sex romp. Yeah, wait and see. No such problems for Malcolm. Our good news, we'll now have a real policy to address climate change. Seriously, Malcolm. Yes, I believe climate change is not utter crap. I believe we have to address the problem seriously. Um, so how will we now address the issue? We will pursue the issue with indirect inaction. Uh, but, 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 but that's what we've got now. That's, that's the utter crap policy. Exactly. But the positive is it is now not utter crap. Just ask Barnacle. And if anyone knows anything about utter crap, well, at least we'll get a conscience vote on marriage equality. You believe in that, don't you? Religiously, if that be the expression. Religiously. So any day now. One day now we will hold a plebiscite. Uh, but that was also Tiny's ploy to stop that. Look, surely it's good enough that my conscience supports the issue, particularly given the nature of my electorate. Lots of those people. But, but a plebiscite's the democratic way to go, isn't it, Barnacle? 
more importantly, Malcolm, it is, you know, like a, a conscience vote. My conscience will not, you know, like condone a conscience vote. See, so I am allowing a conscience vote, although with Barnacle it could be called an unconscious vote. <laughs> uh, so what differences will we see then? Uh, well, it's pretty obvious. I'm taller, more urbane, highly intelligent, very witty, and most importantly, very, very rich. Indeed, it's the one downside to achieving my lifelong ambition, with a little help from Barnacle and that whopping boar who's his leader, Rabbit Warren or something. The one downsize is having to downsize a slummit at that tiny lodge place or that Kirribilli joint. Billy, Billy T, Barnacle, we love that over the bush, don't we? Can't like you don't stand it, Malcolm. No, no, I, I know that myself, Barnacle. On state politics, former state big supremo, now unsuccessfully attempting to address the mass depression he caused, Jeff Footinmouth, came out fuming at Malcolm's perfidy and ambition. Yes, yes, Jeff Footinmouth attacked ambition. Pointed out at one stage his popularity was down to 19%, and yet I won the next election. Well, good news, Jeff. Your next ambition, whatever it is, is unlimited, because here at 3CR, your popularity rating is 0%, only because it can't logically be minus. So, the world's your oyster. He talked about people considering only he or herself. Jeff, what were you doing during grammar classes at Scotch? Shame. Hope that's not what they teach. The Getting Your Priorities Right Award of the Week to the Failfax Capitalist Review yesterday after a huge earthquake struck Chile a week after they mourned the 9-11 tragedy, the murder and slaughter under General Pinch of Shit in 1973 orchestrated by their great protector, the US of the UN of the US of the world. But, but I digress. Huge earthquake causing death, injury and damage, particularly in poor neighbourhoods. And the Capitalist Review headline and story, Chile's giant copper mines escape quake. Chile's largest copper mines escape damage from an 8.3 magnitude earthquake that struck, etc. Phew, that's all that matters. Look, in fairness, they did mention deep, deep in the story somewhere there had been death and injury as adobe structures crumbled. But good news for those who really matter. And in the US of the same deep concern for loss of life. General Profits Matters, the car company, our great Socialist Party Socialist, Kimil Cars Don't Pollute believes should be had at the public purse as a giant step towards socialism, settled a case over at least 124 people dying through a defect the company was aware of but shut up about. It agreed to pay 900 mil pocket money in return for not facing charges and no individuals being charged with killing 124 people. Bet those Afro-Americans rotting on death rows across the US of which they had a bit of pocket money to buy their way out. Well, what's a minimum 124 deaths when it comes to a great corporation trickling down all those yellow drops of social benefits like all the other deaths caused by its exhaust pipe?
News item the other night about a young girl with severe autism whose mother struggled to work for the money to bring her to True Blue Aussie after their local society condemned her as possessed by devils, being sent back to Indonesia in other people's business unless the government reversed its decision, with several senior government ministers, including the new big supremo, supporting her case for staying here. Strong argument, I thought, until the item finished with her fate now depends on Peter Duffer's mercy. Peter Duffer's what? He'll probably get a few laughs out of her by placing her in a cubicle during his next comedy act with a rising water level lapping at her future, over which he can share a few hysterical laughs with Tiny down at the used parliamentarian's club. By placing her like, you know, mother in there with her, each won't have to mourn the other, which shows just how merciful I, you know, like, am. We implied cruelly that Barnacle mightn't be quite the sharpest knife in the Canberra drawer, although they're all pretty blunt, even though they can bring out the sharp knives in weeks like this. But blunt as Barnacle might be, Peter Duffer certainly throws out a major challenge in that department, that drawer. On that note, mixing our metaphors, thought our finally this week should be a tribute to Pete's great comedic mind. At the comedy club we'll throw a huge party <laughs> to celebrate what once used to be Kiribati. And we'll fall about as we wave to Roo <laughs> to what used to be Kuvaloo. While the way it's lapping it won't be long now that we get heaps of laughs out of no longer Palau. <laughs> then I'll do a cruise ship comedy routine wreath bombing about where these islands had been. Uh, but seriously, we won't have them bludge on us like a praying mantis when they become just another Atlantis. <laughs> Yet no laughs, no comedy in the depths of the political briny, a tragic reflection of Joe, me and Tiny. Bobbing wreath, rip, vicious and reeling, leaving me with that sick sinking feeling. We'll all shed tear after tear for the rising threat to Blue Aussies all fear. No laughing matter. By week's end, I don't think I'll be here. Well, we can only hope. Poor Peter, poor Tiny, poor Joe. What a loss to national thought. Good morning. And good morning, Uncle Kevin Healy. That was good. Now, we're going to go straight on to Humphrey, who's waiting on the phone. Kevin good morning. Have a new standard. He'd have to do them all in verse now. <laughs> That's right. He's pretty talented, isn't he? He's wondrous. <laughs> and how are you, Humphrey? Oh, I'm very good. Yes. And um, we- I'm, I'm, I'm certainly in a better condition than the Chinese economy, which is what I thought we should say something about. I know. I love the title of your paper, A yeah. Bear in a China Market. What does that mean? Well, you know, they talk about, well, you know, bulls and bears on stock um, on Wall Street. Okay. Okay. Uh, fair enough. So instead of having a bull in a China shop, we've got a bear in a China market. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, this takes us back just briefly to where we started in the year by looking at what is called, misnamed, I think, the great financial crisis. Mm. Um, yes, there was a financial crisis, but that was a symptom. Yes, That wasn't the source of what was going wrong and what had been going wrong in the global capitalist economy for several decades. That's right. Um, and the financial crisis in, from 2007 onwards uh, was a symptom of what you know, we would say is excess demand in the um, 
um, in the whole of the capitalist system. Yes. That competition drives each of the corporations to produce you know, as much as they can so they can beat off the others, and this means that there's excess production. Uh, then they've got to find some way to sell it, and what they do, of course, you know, in the last decades is to get people further and further into debt. Um, and that's what we saw finally in the American um, housing crisis. Mm. Um, and that's what blew the system. But it was this excess capacity that goes way back um, down there. Now, you know, what we have to say is, of course, this excess capacity is only applicable within a capitalist system because effective demand only applies to people who can pay for things. Exactly. I was going to say that. Yes. You know, you need to have people to buy these bloody productions. Yeah. Um, and because of the exploitation that is inherent in the system, in fact, without which it would not happen, mm. um, the workers who can spend the money don't have enough to buy all these things. Now, I mean, that's a very simple version of Marx's account of Oops. what goes wrong. That's right. But that's yes. what we've got to remember. Um, now... When we look at the Chinese situation in the last couple of months, people have been saying, oh, well, this is a stock market. And they have this wonderful word, correction. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and they say that the fundamentals are sound. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves is not why the stock market went down 40%, but why it had gone up hmm. so much in the previous 12 months. And that, I think, leads us into the same kind of um, argument that there was nowhere else for the people in China to, you know, who had this sort of money to invest. Although that's, we'll get round to that where the money came from. Mm. Um, except in these very speculative stock market purchases, so that it was again a great a structural weakness in the economy that was driving people to think, well, where can I put my money apart from the Sydney property market? Mm. So. The fact that it went up was the real sign that there was something fundamentally wrong at uh, home. Now, here we need to go back a bit. Um, when I used to come on every week and talk about this, uh, we'd talk all, you know, fairly regularly about the Chinese economy. Yes. And in 2000, early in 2011, I posted a piece, about 14,000 words, of where I'd been concentrating pretty hard at examining what was supposedly going on in China. And at the time, um, a friend of mine here who's a middle-ranking bureaucrat in the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade read the piece, and he said to me, he said, you know, Humphrey, if one of my colleagues in the department put those views forward they would be sent for psychiatric help. <laughs> yes. The notion that there might be something wrong yeah. with the Chinese economy, that it wasn't going to go up and up and up and up and up forever, yeah. was a definition of being unsound mind. Mm. Now, by chance, I bumped into someone who... I mean, he's not an enemy, but he's not, I mean, not someone who I really know, so I'd say only um, an acquaintance, who I met decades ago when he was the third secretary... He's now a deputy secretary, so he's right at the top. And we're in a bookshop, and he said, oh, hello, what are you doing now? So I said to him about, you know, the collapse of capitalism. <laughs> and I mentioned the China piece and what I didn't name the other bureaucrat, but I said, look, one of your, you know, junior colleagues said this to me. Oh, he said, well, that's no longer the case. 
four years later, <coughs> the consensus is a debate over whether the Chinese political system will bring down the economy before the economy brings down the political system. Interesting point. So that's the change. Mm. Uh, but, of course, sadly to say, it's not a complete change throughout the whole of the uh, experts and the commentators. The military experts keep, because know nothing about economics, and they keep on thinking, well, China's just going to get more and more powerful and, you know, there'll be World War Four or Five or something um, between, the, you know, between the Chinese and the US imperialists. Um, you get other people, like the head of one of the four big banks here, who told us that the fact that the Chinese government had intervened in the stock market and had altered the exchange rate was a proof, a good thing, because it was a proof that market forces were taking over. Mm. Now, how can two government interventions be equate to market forces? I do not know. So... Wisdom is not universal in the ruling class. It just reminds me, it reminds me of, of the glasnost in the Soviet Union with Gorbachev, where, you know, the capitalist system was forcing uh, the, for, the, the, the political system in Russia to fall apart, basically. Yeah, well, um, well, we go and it certainly fell apart during that great, you know, in the aftermath of the Asian crisis in yes. 97, 98 and you know, you know, huge numbers of people lost all their savings. Mm. Um, their whole lives was destroyed out of that. Um, and whether something of that order is in uh, line for China, um, well, that's that's what we're going to continue to to, to try and say something about. Yes. Um, now, one of the things we do have to remind ourselves about whenever we talk about the Chinese economy is as is that Chinese statistics are a form of science fiction. They're very skilled at drawing the bullseyes around the arrow. Uh, nobody's really believed Chinese stats for, you know, well, this is how I got into it, um, <laughs> by reading an article showing that these figures of, you know, huge growth rates were very dubious indeed. A very scholarly article in a very right-wing economic publication <laughs> in the United States. Economics, yes. Now, they say at the moment that their growth is now 7%, which sounds pretty respectable. But most of the outside experts who don't use the Chinese figures, what they do is they use the trading figures, the external figures, to work backwards, saying, well, if this is what they're importing, this is what they're exporting, those sorts of things, mm. what must it mean? Now, a little while ago... Um, a couple of months ago, they came up with a figure that it was only 4% growth in China. And then I noticed in The Economist, they were saying, well, it might only be 2 or 3%. Well, what's important here is not whether it's 2, 3 or 4. What's important is that it's less than 5. Mm. Because what the experts say is that because of the Chinese demography, because of the of the movement of young people into the workforce because of the movement of people out of the rural areas into the urban workforce, unless they're growing at 5%, they are, in fact, going backwards. Hmm. Uh, so if, if it's 4, which was the most optimistic of those figures, then they are already in negative Neg yeah. territory. It's as if, in our sense, they've gone into 
a economic recession um, already. Now, they'll keep on saying that, oh, we're growing at um, 7% or, you know, 6.5 or something. So whenever you hear a Chinese statistic, just remember that it's very likely that it bears no relationship to the economic reality but to the political needs of the entire um, Chinese political economy. So that's the first thing. The other thing and that we've got to remind ourselves of is that while China is a dictatorship, what the leadership says doesn't automatically happen in the rest of the country. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, they kind of think, oh, well, you know, there's this sort of you know, authoritarian, totalitarian system. Well, in many ways it is. But there's 1.5 billion people. Hmm. And within that system, there are lots of centres of power who have their own interests, their own economic interests, their own financial interests. Um, you know, each of the um, regions, each of the big uh, urban areas, um, the divisions within the PLA over dividing up the economic spoils, mm. the divisions within the 80 million people who are in the Communist Party. Yes. They all have their own interests. And when the president says... I'm going to crack down on corruption. A lot of people who have their hands on power lower down the system say, well, that's me. Yes, of course. I'm not going along with this. Mm. Uh, Now, amazingly, in the midst of the financial crisis a couple of weeks ago, the People's Daily had an editorial commenting on the resistance to the party's instructions, in which it said and I just quote this, resistance beyond what could have been imagined. Now, if you imagine that there will be some resistance, the official party paper is saying the resistance to the party instructions is greater than anyone could have supposed. And that's the other thing we've got to remember, that that this is not a system in which you... You know, the government decides something and it automatically happens. And we'll go on to show why this has left them with an enormous number of economic, well, almost disasters. Yes. In, if we take up, I mean, there are four areas in which I think we should, you know, pay some a bit of attention. And the first of those is the uh, steel industry, which is a perfect example of the government having one policy and the people on the ground having a different policy. What the, what the government policy was, <clears throat> was to close down a lot of inefficient, polluting, old steel mills, small ones spread throughout the countryside, and build big, new, powerful, efficient ones, which they did. But the instructions to close down the small ones were mostly not carried through. So what you now have in China is this enormously efficient new steel industry producing alongside this old, inefficient, but still um, an industry that's churning out millions of tonnes of steel. So there's an excess capacity in the Chinese steel industry, excess production, which means they are dumping their steel around the world, which is why 200 people down at uh, the um, Blue Scope uh, steel works uh, at Port Kembla 
are losing their jobs and there's a, a chance <coughs> that the whole of Blue Scope will shut. Can I just clarify something here? Yeah. Couple, a few things, actually. One, it, this, the way you're arguing this case tells me that that dictatorship... No, sorry, can I interrupt for a moment? You are kind of dropping out of my hearing. Oh, okay. You know, can you hear me? I hear you perfectly. But can you hear me now? Slightly better. Yep. So I, I just wanted to ask, you know, this... this view, the political view we have of, or many people have of China as a total dictatorship and the people as just you know, nodding herd that follow is totally contradicted in what you've just said. That's the first point. The second point is, what I would would like you to clarify is that when you say the mills are modernized and a large number of smaller mills didn't close and you say in Marxist terms, no any enough devalorization of capital was taking place. I, I just wonder if you can put that apart a little bit. So how can they overproduce when you still have old mills functioning? Well, I mean, the, well, partly they overproduced because they were predicting what the urban developments would be, what the other developments would be. Now, partly because the rest of the economy is slowing down, the internal demand for steel has slowed down as well. But what you had was that previously, um, you know, if you go back, say, 10 years, they were having to meet that demand out of the old steel mills. They said, no, this is a very inefficient way, very expensive to produce steel this way. We'll close them down, devalorise them, as Marx would have said, um, and put in brand new steel mills, which the central government... And the powers that be, you know, right at the top, yes, they pushed ahead with that. But at the regional level, at the sub-regional level, the people there said, look, this is where we make our corruption. This is where we make our money. Mm. We're not going to close these down because we need these in our area for our particular interests. Um, And so both lots, I mean, some of them closed, but enough of them stayed open. And to add to what was coming online with these uh, brand new ones. So this added to the overproduction and the excess capacity through the steel industry. Okay. Now, the really dangerous story is what happened in the banking sector, because it is banks, of course, that, <clears throat> you know, capitalist system, the money has to keep flowing through the system um, from you know, the, the capital investment into the production goods, into the commodity goods and the purchasing, and then for the next round of investment. So if there's something wrong in the banking system, then you are in serious trouble, as we saw in 2008, when it looked as if the whole of the global economy was going to go down because a couple of big banks in New York were going to go down. And all the other banks said, my God, we can't lend money to anybody because we don't know we'll ever get it back. And the whole financial (laughs) system looked as if it was going to seize up. Now, in China, there are four big state-owned financial institutions. And we've got to go back to the Asian crisis in 97, 98. They were badly hit by that. A lot of bad debts after the boom that had started with Deng Xiaoping after 93. Mm. So in those four or five years had been huge, wild expansion and a lot of bad debts left over. And so what did they do? They said, okay, we'll take all the bad debts out of the banks and set up four bad banks that carry all the bad debt. And this will clear the books of the four big banks. They become the good banks again. And over the next 10 years, we'll pay off 
all the bad debts. Now, that didn't happen. Very little of this was actually you know, uh, written off. The, the money that should have gone in from the rest of the economy to do it didn't turn up. You know, surprise, surprise. People had other things to do rather than paying off um, the bad debts from the last time around. But it was supposed to finish in, in 10 years' time. Now, if you add 10 years to 98, where do you get? 2008. 2008. Yes. What was happening in 2008? <laughs> More bad <laughs> debts. That's right. Left over from the last lot. Mm. So this meant that, ah, what do we do? Well, they decided they'd roll the previous bad debts over for another 10 oh, years. God, yes. So they're not supposed to be paid off till 2018 now. They're still sitting there. Mm. But you get a second lot of bad debts out of 2008. So what do we now have if we look at the Chinese banking system? We've got four good banks with two lots of bad debts. So we've got two lots of bad banks as well as one lot of good banks. And the government said, look, you've got to stop lending, stop running up all these bad debts, and we're going to do that by pushing up interest rates and by pushing up the amount of money you have to hold... Uh, in order to prove that you can deal with any shocks to the system. Well, this did in some ways shrink the amount of lending that was going on in the economy. However, what also happened was what is called shadow banking, Mm. that out of the back doors of the good banks and all sorts of other sources of uh, financial um, investment became available to people. Uh, It wasn't happening in the four big banks anymore. It was happening uh, with money that God knows where it came from, being laundered from here, there or anywhere, Uh, people lending to each other. Um, All this kind of money was floating around. So you've got the good banks, two lots of bad banks, and what could only be described as the third bad bank Mm. as all this um, decentralised shadow banking that was running through the system. And it's out of that shadow banking that the people were borrowing money to buy shares. And that's the other thing, is that, as in the United States, when it went down there, um, people borrowed the money often to buy these. Indeed, they may be borrowing the money to buy the property in the Sydney uh, top end of the market. So that the shadow banking... um, had this doubly bad effect mm. that it it ran up all these speculative um, investments at the same time. So anybody, any banker in Australia uh, who gets paid $7 million a year to tell us that things are going well in China, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the fundamentals are sound, this wonderful <laughs> phrase they have, all we need is confidence in the fundamentals. You'd have to say that that person was of unsound mind. Absolutely. Humphrey, you've got another six minutes to run through. Okay. We got a, a oh, no. Well, I mean, there's only a couple of things really more yeah. um, that, that absolutely have to be said. Um, one of them is about the car industry. Uh, enormous number of cars uh, have gone onto the, um, you know, the roads in China, and you can see with all of the traffic jams and things that yes. are... You know, that are that are certainly around there. And again, we'll quickly go back to 2007-8 in the world. What they estimated was that before then, if you closed down all the auto plants in North America, Canada, the US, and uh, 
Mexico. The rest of the world would still be able to produce enough cars to meet the effective demand. Now, in the years since then, as we know, a lot of plants have been closed down, including some in Australia. I mean, the closure here is the, res- the medium-term result of that build-up of excess capacity. Mm. Uh, that's what's going on in the global scene. Mm. Now, let's look at what, what's been happening in China. Um, the cars that are going in there, uh, they are running into a problem they've never encountered before. A second-hand car market. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's never been second-hand cars you know, in large numbers before. No. So that if the economy shrinks and people think, oh, I'd love a new Mercedes, but I can't afford one, I'll buy a second-hand one. Mm. And I say a Mercedes, about 1.3 million Mercedes are sold in China, um, well, not every year now, but... Um, in the past couple of years. So we're talking about big numbers of Mercedes, which has a big effect back in the German uh, economy as well. Yes, of course. So these are these kind of um, uh, global flows. Yes, um, all interlinking. Now, I'll just finish up with this bit because I think it's really the crucial thing. And it's parallel to what happened in Japan after the crash in um, 1990. There's something called... um, the sort of impact of deflationary expectations. If you look at China now, in the car market, for example, the price of a new Mercedes is not what it was 12 months ago. You could get one, if you go to a car dealer, cheaper than you could have bought one 12 months ago because the car dealers have been landed with all this stock that they can't sell. Mm. So they need cash flow, so they'll sell a car at cost, perhaps even below cost, in order to get some cash to stay in the market at all. Now, what this leads to in an economy is that people think, oh, I was going to buy a new car today, but if I wait a week or a month, then it'll be cheaper. That's right. And the same for real estate in China. People mm. think, oh, I'm going to buy an investment policy for you know one million dollars, but you know it's come down by mm. you know fifty thousand. It might come down another fifty thousand. I'll wait. And what this does, it sets off a deflationary cycle of expectations. Of course, people holding back on purchases, mm. which drives the next lot of prices further down yes. into a spiral. And when that happens. That is another name for depression, Mm. not just an economic downturn. Consumerism doesn't work. Sorry? Consumerism doesn't work. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know, these are the things we have to bear in mind. These are the fundamentals in the Chinese system. There are other things going on there, of course, but this kind of notion that that this is just... uh, a tiny upset um, that is just on the surface of the of this speculative uh, stock market. As I said at the beginning, you've got to ask yourselves not why the market came down, but why it went up. And it went up for the same kinds of reasons, because people have nowhere they felt it was safe to put any of the money that they had been able to get out of the system in the previous few years. So we might leave it at that. Okay. Thank you very much, Hamza. All right. Okay. See you, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Humphrey McQueen, freelance journalist, author, political commentator. We had Gautam Modi from India, Secretary of the New Trade Union Initiative 
giving us a rundown of the strike that happened on the 2nd of September in India involving 150 million workers. We also had, of course, Marcus Harrington, our regular contributor, member of the NUW, and and Kevin Healy, our satire champion for the program. And that's it for this week, listeners. I will be back in a fortnight and... Annie McLaughlin and Kim will be the other half of the team who will take over next week. We will leave with a song from West Papua. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.